Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, Golf Australia Magazine's quest to answer that unanswerable question, just what is it that gets people so nutty about this silly game? My name's Rod Murray, and along with renowned Scottish golf writer John Huggan, it's my great privilege to bring you each fortnight a chat with somebody from the world of golf to get their perspective on what makes the game so addictive. We interview our fair share of players, though they're not the main target. We also peek into the world of the golf business, media, administration, and more. All areas of the game that are home to passionate and dedicated golfers. On this episode, I vacate the host seat for the second straight time, so that we can fulfil a promise made last month when Huggy first joined the show. Back then, we told you his first interview would be with one of the best sports writers in history, Tom Callahan. But his fellow Scott Robert McIntyre interrupted the schedule by winning his first European Tour title. If you haven't listened to that episode, we'll wait while you go and do that now. For everyone else, Huggy's chat with Tom Callahan follows, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it as much as I did. Tom Callahan, thanks for being my uh, first guest on the Thing About Golf podcast. Um, You've been writing about sports in the top sports from now for the best part of half a century, but uh, it seems like you've always been kind of drawn to golf. Is that uh, safe to say or fair to say? Yeah, because there are trees. You know, I like, I like, I like, I like everything that's played during the day, you know, so, so you're not writing at 11.30 at night as fast as you can. But there's got to be, what about the game itself? I mean, you've... Yeah, I, I, you know, I caddied as a kid. You know, I caddied like a demon. You know, I was every, in the summertime, every day I caddied. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I, I caddied at a place in Baltimore called the Country Club of Maryland. And um, the caddies, <clears throat> excuse me, were allowed on the golf course before noon on Fridays. And so I went and bought four golf clubs, a two iron, a nine iron, uh, a driver, and a sand wedge. And um, with green stamps, I got a bag. And, um, and so I had a four club set, and I played every Friday. And I, you know, I was no good, of course, but um, I was like big hitter, big misser. And, um, and so I kind of, you know, I like doing it and it helped. I can't understand golf writers who don't play. You know, you're kind of required to play. So you have some kind of uh, understanding of what's going on. You don't have to be good at it. You know, but through the years, I've played with lots of great players, you know, just, just, you know, for the fact that I could, you know, I could keep going. Is it true then that the, the there's an old cliche about how, um, you know, you play even nine holes of golf with somebody, you get insight into their character. Is that, have you found that over the years? Absolutely. You know, I think you, you, you learn about a guy on the golf course. You learn if he's honest with himself primarily. You know, and and uh, but it's true. There's 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 something about it, and uh, um, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've I've been, you know, I played golf with Sam Snead. I played golf with Jack Nicklaus. I drew Nicklaus in a pro am at the Ohio Kings Island Open, and um, 
it was supposedly a random draw. It was fixed, of course. Yeah. You know, I was the columnist at the local paper, and uh, Nicholas told me before we teed off, he said, they're trying to warm you up. Because I had written a column about the golf course. I said it was a pretty girl for a blind date. <laughs> and he, said, he said, the organizers are trying to warm you up, but don't tell them I told you, you know. Yeah. And, of course, it's a terrible thing to have to play golf with Jack Nicholas at the top of his game. He shot 62 later that week to win the tournament. But we finished, like, last in the Pro-Am. And, uh, and uh, um, his caddy, the fuzzy-wigged, gray-haired Angelo Arguia, yeah. trying, to be, trying to think of something nice to say to me afterwards, said, you only hit one guy. You only hit one guy. You know? <laughs> I hit him hard. You know, I mean, that's the thing. As bad a player as I've always been, I've always been a big hitter. You know, and, and so the other plonkers who were playing with us, they couldn't hurt anybody, but I could. Yeah. You know, and I'm steering the ball. You know, they're lining up in, in funnels as if I was Jack Nicholas, you know, and, and you're in, the, you're in the, the weird position of instead of watching the greatest player in the world hit a golf ball, the greatest player in the world is watching you hit a golf ball. You know, it's like the world's on upside down. Yeah. And, uh, oh, God, it was a horrible day. But, but, but Nicholas and I kind of got to know each other then. And this was, this was early on. This was in the early 70s. And so I always, I always knew him, and, um, which, which helped, you know. And, uh, um, but, I mean, through the years, you know, I played with Ernie Els before he won a Masters or you before he even played in a Masters, excuse me, or played in a U.S. Open. And, um, you know, lost $300 to Snead, the Greenbrier. He, he, he gave me nine strokes for 100, 100, 100. I said, sure, Sam, as long as you know that I know you could beat me playing left-handed. <laughs> you, could, you could certainly beat you at putting. I've seen you putt, Tom. Yeah, yeah I know. Hey, don't, don't mention that. And, uh, and uh, um, putting side saddle, as he did in those days, he shot 69 to win the 300. I put it on my expense account. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Isn't that what Golf Digest is for? Yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, and he, you know, he was he was he was good. Um, he was good to play with. At the very end, you'll you'll you might uh, remember this little clip. We were we were we were in the clubhouse with our shoes off and, and sitting with our feet up and our stocking feet. And we're watching a um, award ceremony at Oakmont from 1953, which was the last uh, of four U.S. Open championships for Hogan and the last of four runner-up um, positions in the U.S. Open for Snead, who won every major but the U.S. Open. Yeah. And um, at, at one point, Snead reaches over and he touches the – the trophy, big trophy, in Hogan's arms and rubs it. And Hogan takes the trophy. I'm sure you've seen this. And he rubs the trophy up and down Sneed's stomach. And I said to Sam, you know what he's doing with that trophy, don't you? And he said, what? I said, you want to touch it. It wants to touch you. Hmm. And he started to cry. Really? Wow. 
<laughs> you know, he kept score by Hogan. So did Byron Nelson. I, I interviewed Nelson once, and he was he was rattling through his, um, you know, great year of, you know, winning, what was it, 18 straight? And, and he, every time he, he mentioned the tournament, he'd say, and Hogan was there? <laughs> yeah. Hogan was there? You know, he kept score by Hogan. Sneed kept score by Hogan, but Hogan didn't keep score by anybody, you know. And, and I, of course, I didn't know Hogan, but I was in his company a couple of times. And one of them was my great friend Dave Kinder and I went around the world uh, playing golf to write a book about it. And, um, you know, he went to China and Russia and everywhere. And um, it was a big boondoggle. And um, uh, we stopped off at Shady Oak in, in Fort Worth and to see Hogan. And uh, the young pro there was nice enough to introduce us. He said, I'm not making you any guarantees. I'm not saying he'll talk to you, you know, because he was difficult. But uh, Hogan was very nice to us. He stood up, but he didn't sit back down again. He was he was in the clubhouse. He was in the, the, the lounge there, you know, having a drink and looking out at the 18th uh, green. And... Um, <laughs> We had been at Carnoustie, you know, a couple of weeks before, and um, I played hideously bad at Carnoustie. I, I, I had a ton of eights, and I, I think I had a ten. And uh, but I made a couple of pars, and I and I hit a eight footer for eagle at the sixth hole, his hole, Hogan's Alley. Yeah. And um, of course, I missed it. And, um, <laughs> and so, so Kindred says to Hogan. He says, uh, Mr. Hogan, Tom uh, almost made a three on the sixth hole of Moosey last week. And Hogan said, I don't remember individual holes anymore. And I said, that's all right, Mr. Hogan. They all remember you. Oh, and, he, and he laughed, you know. Yeah. He laughed. But, uh, yeah, I didn't, I can't really say I knew, knew him, but I was in his company a couple of times. Well, you, you've got to finish off that story because I've heard you tell that one before. Oh, when, when you went out to play, yeah. tell us what happened there. <laughs> yeah, we, we 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 had played the front nine first. Now we went out to play the the other nine. Now I'm coming up eighteen, and I hit a three iron like ten feet or something. And uh, I look at the window, and Hogan's standing in the window, you know, by his table. And he's wrapped his great hands together and hoists them over his head and shakes them in my direction, which, of course, what he didn't know was I'd started that hole with a different ball. <laughs> <laughs> but I, told, I told Raymond Floyd once, I said, I never saw Hogan play, but he saw me play. <laughs> that's, one of, that's one of the great lines. It has to be. Yeah, and Floyd loved that. He, he's made me tell that story a couple of times. Now, even in the the ten minutes or so that we've already been talking, you've you've rhymed off a catalogue of star names through the ages in golf. I ask this because uh, you know Jack Nicholas has been in the news lately with his endorsement of President Trump. Um, that has disappointed a lot of people around the world, me included, I have to say. But um, you've met all these people and seen them up close. How many of them have disappointed you? Is the, is the old cliche about you should never meet your heroes, how true is that? 
Um, I've been pretty lucky in that regard. But although I admit that I also was disappointed in Jack and surprised because, you know, Jack was a beacon of integrity his whole golfing life. You know, and, and, you know, to me, almost the best thing that ever happened in a Ryder Cup, you know, was when Tony Jacklin had a two-and-a-half-footer or something to tie everything. Mm. Back in the days when that mattered, when that was unusual. And um, uh, to Sam Sneed's disgust, he was the captain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jack picked up the coin and said, uh, and, the mo and the important thing is what he said. He said, you couldn't miss it, Tony, but I'm not going to give you the chance. Yeah. And to me, that's sportsmanship. That's the right thing to do. And basically, Nicholas, when it came time, he, he, he virtually every time did the right thing to do. So it's like it's, it like makes me sad that he can't see what a – liar and four flusher Trump is and everybody who's played golf with him catches him cheating on the golf course. He cheats in life. He cheats in everything. And for, for, for Nicholas not to see that, I mean, I understand that golfers, especially of Jack's vintage are Republicans, you know, they're right. the right wingers, but, but Trump exception, you know, Trump, Trump is such a um, disappointment as a human being. That that for Jack to ally himself with that is is you know it's just so surprising. Yeah. But 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 in, in most ways, I have to say, um, you know, I've seen Jack in a lot of situations. I was in his office once with him. He was sitting in his shorts, and he he had one shoe off because he had just showed me his hammer toe. Only Jack Nicholas would think his hammer toe was interesting. <laughs> yeah. But we were talking about Tiger and and he said to me, he said, he said, I don't even expect you to believe this. He said, but I've, I've been rooting for someone to come along and break my records. This was early on in Tiger's, you know, time. Did, and, you, uh, did you believe that? I guess I did, and, and he said, because he went on to say, um, he said, you know, I never put Bobby Jones's records up on my bedroom wall. He said, he said, I, I, I didn't diminish Jones by coming along, and he says, and 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 Tiger's not going to diminish me by coming along and breaking my records. He said. Everybody said as soon as he won the Masters, 17 more to go, Tiger. He said, "Well, I never had that pressure." He says, "What I would like to, I would like to tell him, son, it's your turn. You know, it's a wonderful ride down this road you're going, you're about to take. You know, you know, get the most out of it. You know, he he was so authentic. He made me believe it. I, I in his heart of hearts, I'm, I'm I bet he's." just as glad that Tiger fell short of the 18 majors, but because he's a human being. Yeah. But, but he, he, you know, he, everything he said made me respect him even more, you know? And, and of course, Tiger was up against greater athletes, you know, Ernie Els, but, but 
Nicholas was up against geniuses. Mm. You know, there's nobody playing now like Lee Trevino. There's nobody playing like Lee Trevino. No. And and the, the 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 guys he beat and the guys he jousted with and Tom Watson, you know, Tom Watson, yeah. you know, Tiger's, Tiger was beating bigger guys who hit it farther on bigger golf courses. But you know what? He wasn't up against that genius factor that Nicholas was up against. And, and all those guys had their moments against Nicholas, but he had more moments against them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I always, um, you know, I always think it's slightly unfair to compare anybody with Nicholas or, or Woods. I mean, you know, you mentioned Ernie. I mean, Ernie, you know, especially had he been an American, would have been, you know, hailed as this star of the ages, if you like. Same with, you know, and Phil Mickelson, the, the same. I always I go back and forth between those two as to who was the number two player in the Tiger Woods era, if you like. But, I mean, you're right about Nicholas. I mean, you know, nobody... You mentioned some great names there, but they all kind of pale into insignificance against Jack's record. I mean, if you actually look at Jack's record, especially in the in our Open over here, I mean, it's ridiculous, his record. I mean, he was once outside the top six in 20 years or whatever it was, you know, in the 60s and 70s. It was a ridiculous record. You, you might not remember this, John, but <clears throat> when, when Rory McIlroy, I think he was 20, he had either just won in Carolina or was just about to win in Carolina, his first PGA Tour event. And um, he was taking some pictures for Golf Digest on the adjacent course to the player, to where the um, Players' Championship is played. There was a, there's a sawgrass course where it used to be played. Yeah. He was over there, and it was kind of a rainy day, and you were over there, and uh, the photographer, Don Furore, was taking pictures. And, um, and so, uh, <laughs> I know where you're headed with this, but go on. <laughs> well, we got into a cart to get out of the rain, Rory and I, and I happened to have a guide in my hand and I opened it up to Nicholas's many pages and I rattled off his finishes in the open championships. And it's something like second, second, third, second, first, second, fourth, second, and there's a 12th in there. Yeah. And that, that was the outlier. Everything else is fifth, fourth, third, second, first, fourth. And I finished. I, I did it from 1960, from uh, I, I think about 18 of them to up to 1980. Yeah. And, and Rory looked at me. He was a kid then. And he said, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I laughed, you know, but, but, you know, he had no idea. Well, who does? People don't really remember or realize how good he was. I, I, I mean, in my heart, I think Tiger's better. It, it, Tiger, Tiger was a better player. There are things on his resume, you know, when he, when he held all four majors at once, when he won seven of 11 majors, you know, when he, when he won the open by, 15 shots and, and then a month later the British, you know, by eight, you know, those are things Jack didn't do, you know, I mean, and just the sight of him to me, I consider him the best player I ever saw. But as you say, it's hard to, it, 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 there's a flaw in kind of judging errors. It's so different, you know, and, and I saw um, 
Jack, you know, in the old days, we could walk. You remember the writers could walk along with him, you know, and I saw him close up. And, and, and the first time I ever saw him, I was stunned at how little he is. Yeah. Mm. A little tiny guy, you know, and uh, little tiny feet and little tiny hands, you know, but, uh, but huge legs and incredible power. You know, his, his boyhood coach, Jack Grout, who's a very sweet guy from Oklahoma, lovely guy. And uh, he told me, he swore to me that Jack was never as long as a pro as he was as a boy, mm. you know, as, a, as a kid. And he brought himself in because he got tired of being referred to as a gorilla. You know, he, he, he wanted to be a finesse player. And, um, and Grout tried to talk him out of it. He said, you got this big advantage. Don't throw it away. But, but Jack wanted to be a certain kind of player. And, um, and he wasn't the perfect player. He didn't, as, as Torino said, God doesn't give you everything. And he didn't really get, he wasn't really given a short game. Mm. You know, in his dotage, Phil Rogers reappeared, his old boyhood opponent, and taught, taught him, Gave him a little course in sandwiches that helped him, you know, and he, he ended up winning a couple of majors after everybody thought he had stopped. And then, of course, he won the distant major in 86. He won the Masters. And um, I was for there for that. I, I've i wasted my life. I've been to 30-some of everything, World Series and Super Bowls and everything, but uh, and, and Masters and, and U.S. Opens and um, I used to, I kept going to the, to the, um, open championship long after I stopped the others. So I could hang around with Dan Jenkins. I was his, I was his driver, you know, his, his chauffeur, cause he couldn't drive. He couldn't drive on the left side of the road. And I barely could. I, I was, I was on the left side of the road about 86% of the time. And, uh, and, 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 and Jenkins and I, we we you know we we palled around and he he. Um, well, I always used to ask if you guys were out in the car at the, when you were in Britain because if you were out in the car, I certainly wasn't going to go out in the roads. That's for sure. Well, well I was. They're tremendously courteous drivers here because every time I go through a roundabout, everybody waves at me. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, you talk about Nicholas. I mean, I don't want to uh, leave him just yet. I mean, one of the probably the hardest things he had to do was, was um, you know, supersede Arnold Palmer in the hearts and minds of America. Um, I'm not sure he ever did that. Um, what was it? Was the, the the kind of stereotype true that Arnold was loved and Jack was admired? I wrote this line. I'm going to say 40 years ago. Anyway. It, it was as if God said to uh, Nicholas, you will have skills like no other. Then turned to Palmer and whispered, but they will love you more. Mm. And I think that was the kind of bargain, the deal. Palmer beat Nicholas, um, I'm, excuse me, Nicholas beat Palmer in the uh, U.S. Open at Oakmont when Nicholas was 22. And nobody wanted Palmer beaten. Yeah, And, and Nicholas was... He was in his fat jack phase and people were screaming, look at fat guts, you know, and Jack, of course, didn't hear him, you know, because Jack, Jack was alone on the golf course in several ways. And, um, and of course, Palmer wasn't in favor of heckling, you know, he, he, he was a complete sportsman, you know, and he was, 
he he was awed by Jack, but he, he, he and he said I heard him say more than once that if he could have beat Jack in their playoff in that original U.S. Open, you know, in '62, if he could have held him off there, he might have held him off for a little while longer. But he said I wasn't going to be able to hold him off forever, hmm. and which was very honest. I mean, Nicholas was better, but. Palmer was more saleable. You know, Nicholas had to get rid of Mark McCormick, the agent, because even though he had gone by Palmer, um, you know, Mark was still finding it easier to sell Palmer than Jack. And and the the big three, you, you fold Gary Player into that. And the, and the three of them traveled the world, and, and Arnold would be at the controls of the plane, and and player would be under the seat, scared to death, and uh, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and the, the three of them, they would have they would have um, ginger ale battles in their hotel rooms, and, and you know, it was really it was really kind of boyish stuff. In fact, Jack said to me once, he said, one time Arnold, early on, we got to kicking each other under the table. He kicked me. I kicked him. We, we had huge bruises. He says. He says we used to do the stupidest stuff, you know. But that's that's that was the the relationship. You know, all three of them were kind of mutually jealous of each other. Player, least of all, because player, he he uh, he was kind of like the guy who waited who who waited for peace to come between the other two, you know, and. Uh, um, I know, I know your uh, player isn't one of your favorites, but 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 the funny thing is, he is kind of one of mine. I know, I know, I know some of his imperfections, but 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 I just I understood because he was a 140 pound guy competing with these two giants and holding his own, really, which I always I always admired, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I was in, I was in South Africa once. And I, I was staying at the Santon Sun Hotel, where everybody stays in Johannesburg. And um, I went and saw Player on a Saturday to interview him. Now I'm finished. You know, I've done my deal. And uh, the phone rings the next morning, like five o'clock in the morning. Tom, Tom, it's Giddy, it's Giddy. I didn't. I was so. <laughs> was that your South African accent, by the way? So. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I and. Uh, and so, uh, so, so, uh, I told, I, I forgot where I was. Yeah. I didn't know I was in South Africa. I didn't know it was Gary player calling, but he, he said, he, he said, I'm sending a car for you. I don't like the idea of you being in a hotel on a Sunday. And so he sent his car and, and dragged me all the way back to Lanceria for, for brunch with his, with his wife and his children. You know, he, I mean, he, he's a real, real gentleman player you know and uh and 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 i i i have to admit i've had a tremendous weakness for him through the years though i know he's not perfect um speaking of south africans i know um you know you know i like to play favorites in our business but uh i know you've always had a soft spot for ernie can you expand on why that is well, the, very, the reason was the very first time I met him, I interviewed him in his agent's office in Johannesburg. And um, as I say, he hadn't yet qualified for a Masters or a U.S. Open. 
But he played in a British, and he had a good result. You know, he he might have finished sixth or something in that first British he played in. And um, he was the next guy, you know, you kind of knew. You know, the players know first. And so Galtai just wanted me to write a pro profile on him. But anyway, so when we finished our talk, I said, what are you going to do this afternoon? He says, I'm playing golf in Pretoria. And I said, do you mind if I come follow you? And he said, no. So, of course, I got lost. And by the time I got there, they were going down the full fairway. He and two other guys. And um, he says, where's your clubs? I said, they're in the car. He said, go get them, man. So I got my clubs. And um, we were playing with a Air Force buddy of his named Gary Todd. Big, big guy. Big as Ernie. And, and a big hitter, though, you know, I don't know how many shots Ernie was giving him, but it wasn't enough. Ernie burgled the first five hole. And, and now we're on the sixth tee, and Ernie's just talking to me. You know, he's hardly paying any attention to his golf ball, and he's burgled the first five holes. And now we get to the sixth tee of par three, and we, there's a little wait. And Todd is across the tee from us. And smoke is coming out of his ear. And, and he, he says, hey, Elsie, the bleeping guy knows you can play, you know? And I, and, and I looked at each other and laughed. And uh, Ernie did take his foot off the accelerator. You know, you learn about, as you said before, you learn about a guy on the golf course. Yeah. And Ernie, Ernie backed off, you know, started making pars. And... Um, that was the first thing I knew about him. You know, the, the first thing I knew about him was he's a good guy, you know. And so through the years, I always had a kind of a weak spot for him. You know, I, I, I have to admit it. You know, people laughed at me because I went on the Today Show selling a book the day after Ernie finished sinking at Wentworth um, to Jansen, I think. And now they're going, they're on their way to Oakmont. And the last question Brian Gumbel asked me on TV he said, "Who's going to win the Open next week?" I said, "Ernie Els." He had never heard of him. Yeah, yeah. And the the, the next week when he did win at, at Oakmont, Brian Gumbel on, on the Today Show, Tom Callahan said that last week, you know, which was if students of my pick through the years would know people. <laughs> Very unusual for me to get that right, but but yeah, I I, I, I always had a kind of a, a a feeling for him, and and he to me he's the he's the victim, the main victim of Tiger. You know, he was he was he was trying to co combat Tiger when he was alone doing it. I mean, people forget Mickelson didn't engage for ten years. You know, he wasn't. It, it was it was it was Ernie who was finishing second, second that summer, 23 shots back. Yeah. Second in the U.S. Open, second in the British. Well, that that would have been enough to kill Bruce Crampton behind Nicholas. Tom, Tom Weisskopf climbed into the gutter, you know, pulled the leaves over top of him rather than look Nicholas in the eye. But Ernie kept on. He kept trying, you know. And then almost by an act of God, he ended up winning another – Open Championship. I was I was thrilled that he won an Open Championship, and I had some quit on. You know, I bet on. Hmm. And um, but then you always did. 
I always, uh, I, I always, I usually had both an emotional and a and a monetary stake in, you know, and uh, and he never let me down. And I, I think you'll understand this because you know him better than I do. He he um, he never lets you down, you know. He never says the you know he never does the, does or says the wrong thing, you know. He's he's in, incredibly authentic and he's got you know he, he, he's take, taken a lot of beating because he was convinced when he showed up that he was going to have a turn mm. as number one and he really didn't i mean he did in this in a technical sense he i think he was ranked number one for 10 or 11 weeks or something but he was never number one in what i call the ted williams sense where people would see him walking down the street and say, there goes the best golfer in the world. No one ever said that about Ernie. And, uh, and he was sure he was going to have a turn. And so that was, that was a big disappointment. But on the other hand, he, I never felt him rooting against Tiger. He was, he was like, he, he, he came off of uh, uh, the, an 18th green at Disney one year and he played great and lost by a shot to Tiger. And, uh, he said to me, Tom, he was out of this world good. He was out of this world good. There were guys who resented Ernie. Curtis Strange, for one, when, Ernest, when, when Ernie would say, he's from Mars. You know, you know, he, you know they would say, Ernie Elk would quit her. You know, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't say that about your opponents. No. You know, and... Uh, you certainly I, wouldn't I, say that to Ernie's face, that's for sure. <laughs> Ernie, just about the last guy you know, I would want to fight on the, uh, in professional golf. Just about the last guy. Maybe, maybe Wee Woozy would be on that list too. But, the, but, 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 you know, the, he whoever fights Ernie has to rely on his goodness not to kill them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where, where do you, before we get to Tiger, um, where, where do you stand on the? We, I touched on it earlier. The Ernie v Phil debate on on who was the second best player in that time. I've changed my mind slightly. I thought Ernie was worlds better, but I considered Ernie the best world player. And I considered Phil the better PGA Tour player. And, uh, but when, when Phil won at Muirfield, he crossed the Rubicon to me. He became much bigger and better in my, in my way of thinking. For one thing, he was wonderful that day, that back nine especially. But he he had never really done much on Lynx uh, courses. In fact, his two Lynx victories were eight days apart that week. Yeah. And you know, and he, but but to me, that moved him up in my mind by a lot. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think I could we could pin him down. But if we put him on a lie detection machine, I think he would say Muirfield was his best win, was the one that mattered the most to him. Yeah. Because it's, it's the one that separated him from what he had been. What he had been. You know, he, and he had been great. It's not, you know, it's not like he, he was a Hall of Famer. There's no doubt about that. But he, 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 he moved into a new place by winning at Muirfield and winning the way he did. Well, I, I think that, I mean, I've talked to Phil enough um, at Scottish Opens over the years. One-on-one, um, -on -one, he was always good enough to give me a 
some time in Scottish Opens for a few years when he was playing. And I think he agrees with everything that you just said, 100%. Sure, I, think yeah. he, I think he elevated himself in his own mind when he won the yeah, Open. He, sure knew that, he knew that was the glaring hole in his resume, if you like. I'm glad to hear that. I, I've never talked to him about it. Um, he's been very generous to me through the years. You know, I once wanted to come see him to talk to him about Tiger, and he said, oh, don't come. If you come, I'll be stuck with you. <laughs> he said, "He said, just call me. I won't hurry you. We can talk on the phone. And we had a very long conversation about Tiger on the phone. And, uh, um, but he, you know, he, he was really a supporting player in the early years. It, it, like, as no one remembers, you know, the famous call at the players, better than most, better than most, better than most. You know, Tiger holds a possible putt at the players. Mickelson, uh, Mickelson was on the green. Yeah, yeah. He was he was playing with him when that happened, but nobody remembered that that he was there. He, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't a lead character. He was the guy who delivered the flowers in the second act. You know, he, <laughs> but he, he wasn't a best supporting actor. You know, and and in, in those days when it was Ernie alone. And that was a lonely thing to be, because because Tiger was so good. And uh, I mean, people—I don't even think people really remember how good he was because it's so long ago, 2000. You know, I mean, Tiger. He at the beginning, you know, 99, 2000, 2001. He was so much better. He. He really didn't have to play particularly well to win, and, uh, and but he did play particularly well a lot. And it, you know, as David Faraday used to say, one by one, all my all my memories in golf were being replaced by his. You know, because he, he's following him everywhere, and and all he's seeing is one great shot after another. And uh, um, and so you know, Mickelson. Uh, it was, it was never really a patch on him. And, and th that's another thing. Tiger would never say it. But if we put him on a polygraph, I think he would say Ernie was his big opponent. Yeah, yeah. What, what um, let, let's talk about Tiger now because, you know, but maybe the exception of Jaime Diaz, you've been around or have been closer to the inner circle, if you like, when you did the book. Uh, you went to um, Vietnam to find the the real tiger, if you like, and you you knew his father very well. I mean, what, what do you make of Tiger as a human being before we even get into his golf? Well, I agree with you. By the way, I I, I think Jaime Diaz has had Tiger in the best perspective for the longest. Yeah, but in the course of going to Vietnam and looking for Tiger Fong, I got to know Earl certainly. Pretty well, and Tiger, you know, about as well as you can. But um, but it's he's, he's got to be a strange human being, Tom, to be certainly, certainly not multi-dimensional. I mean, it, nobody who's the best in the world at anything is is ever going to be a rounded human being. I mean, the, the, you can't be because you spend so much time on on one thing. But I mean, Tiger was was so much better than everybody else. I mean, but he's an extraordinary human being in many ways. But what was your take on him? Well, I said to Earl once, when you assembled that kid in your garage, you left out some human parts. Hmm. And, and he laughed, you know. Um, 
you know, Ti Tiger um, is so self-absorbed that it's, it, it could make you want to cry. And uh, Hank Haney, his, his old swing coach, used to describe dinners where Tiger would finish his dinner and get up and walk out in a restaurant. He wouldn't say to Hank, are you done? You're almost done? He, he'd finish and get up and walk out. Yeah. He was that self-centered, you know. And, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, when I, when Golf Digest wanted me to go to Vietnam looking for Tiger Fong, well, it, the, the whole thing started when uh, I was at the Milwaukee Open, Tiger's first pro, you know, his debut. Yeah. Hello, world. You know, so... Uh, Earl, that's the first conversation I ever had with Earl in a group of guys. And he said, he said he named him, he changed Eldrick's name to Tiger the first day in the maternity ward. He said, uh, I, I renamed him after my Vietnam comrade, Tiger Fong. He said, Colonel Fong, because... I knew someday, I just knew Tiger was going to end up famous and that my old friend would pick up a newspaper or magazine and see his name and say, that must be Woody's kid. And we'd find each other again. Well, I, I didn't believe this, you know. And uh, so I said to him, me being me, I said, uh, when were you in Vietnam, Earl? And he said, not sure. I said, you're not sure when you were in Vietnam? This is in the 60s, the first time, then in the 70s. I said, give me the name of anybody. This is a mean thing to say, by the way. I said, give me the name, give me the name of anybody who died around you. I live in Washington. I'll go, I'll go to the wall, and I'll tell you exactly when you were there. And he said, nobody, no Americans died around me. I was a advisor. Only South Vietnamese died around me. And I wondered to myself, I wonder if this guy even was in the military, you know. So, so when when Golf Digest wanted me to go to Vietnam, I said, "Look, I'm not going until I'm sure he exists." You know, I just don't. It's not. It's not going to be any fun to go all the way to find it's a fraud, you know. So I did a Freedom of Information Act request on Earl's records, and they came back like the week before the 97 masters and, uh, sure enough he had been 13 months in vietnam in the 60s and 13 months in the 70s and um so when i went to augusta i handed the records to earl he was sitting under a umbrella table outside the clubhouse and he, he looked at me and he said you didn't believe me did you i said no I said, Who? and uh, uh in everything he said uh, t typical John, he said to me in Milwaukee, I said, I said, do you think he'll make enough money in seven? He's allowed to play in seven events. Do you think he'll make enough money to avoid Q school? And he looked at me and he said, seven events? He's going to win one of them, isn't he? <laughs> I said to myself, boy, are you sheltered. And uh, he won two of them. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, um so, so Earl, Earl and I kind of got along, you know, uh, we could talk and, uh, he, he, he would say things to me like, uh, 
you know, Tiger never lies. He never lies. You know, that he, he told a lie when he was a little boy once and it made him physically sick. I said, Earl, the biggest liar on the PGA Tour. <laughs> you know, he would, he would laugh. But uh, you know, I would say to Tiger, uh, I'd go see Earl at, at Open Championships. I watched TV with him one day. Me and Bev Norwood. Remember Bev Norwood? Yeah, of course. He was an IMG guy. We would go sit with Earl as, as he watched Tiger on TV. And um, he'd talk to the television screen. He'd say, Tiger, you're standing too, way too close to the ball. And the next day, Earl would wave me over and he'd say, Tiger called me last night. He said, I heard you, Pop. I was standing and I said, Earl, there are a million writers out here who will believe that. <laughs> yeah. he, he, said, he said, do you mind if I believe? I said, no, not too far. Yeah, sure, go ahead. You know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I got along with him. He had, he, had, he had a lot more decency than his boy. You know, he, 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 he was a human being. You know, he was... He was really, you know, he was really uh, a reprobate in a lot of ways. But uh, I, I went into, a, I went into a, a cocktail party at Sherwood when Tiger was having that tournament he has in California. And Tiger was in the room and, and with his crowd and Tita, his mother, was in the room with her crowd. And she and Earl were estranged but pretending not to be. And, and Earl was in the middle of the room wearing like a black sweater with a, a disc, gold disc around his neck. He looked like a lounge lizard from Caesar's Palace. And <laughs> that was a prostitute on his arm, you know, and not an attractive one either. And uh, <laughs> he looked at me. I wasn't even looking for him, but he caught my eye and he whispered, my niece. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but I mean, I said to Tiger once, "How come you're not staying with your dad? You know, at that house and at the open?" He said, "Are you kidding?" He said, "You know, mom and pop are back under the same roof. Creeps me out." You know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I got along with him. You know, we weren't friendly because, you know, but I don't think he was friendly with any of the writers. And I certainly wrote things that he didn't like, but. Um, but he, but we got along. I could, I could. I, every now and then, I sent him an email, and he'd always answer. Yeah, I have a theory, though, Tom. That I mean, for all his, Errol gets all the publicity for his influence on Tiger. But I, I have a theory that there's a lot of his mother in him as well. I mean, she's yeah. tough. For in, in my lim very limited experience. Well, he told me Tiger told me she all the punishments came from Tita. Yeah. He said my father never spanked me. My mother did. He said my. Well, my mother was always worried that I was embarrassing her. You know, he, that was the worst thing I could do was embarrass her. You know, but but she was, I think he loved them both, but even though he, he considered them both to be incredibly eccentric, you know, and he, he, <laughs> he you know, he, he, he'd, he'd get away from them when he could. And, uh, uh, but she was, yeah, she, she, she was a legend in junior golf because she 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 followed him. You know she she was she was ten steps behind him the whole trip. She was always there, and uh, 
and she, you know, she, um, I think you're right. I think she had a big influence on him. And, and, and Earl used to say she set the rules. We, you know, Tiger and I obeyed him, you know, and, and, you know, and she, she was like the Manchurian candidate. You know, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, he, he loved them, and uh, uh, he—he, he, <laughs> I think he loved the first family as much as he could. He finally let them go, you know. Because see, when Earl came home from his second tour in Vietnam and his R and R in Thailand, he he came home and he told his wife he, he was married, Anne. And they had three children. He told Anne that he met Tita on the plane. In fact, they were traveling together. And he told Anne, he said, I'm going to try and get her a job, which, of course, he did as his wife. And um, so, so uh, um, you know, so, but, but by the end, by the time I knew them, she was pretending to still be living there, but she wasn't. And, um it was very complicated. He was an incredibly sentimental man. I found, um, of course, what happened to Fong just through complete accident. Um, he's, he, had, he had died in a re-education camp. He'd been starved to death. When he, he died when Tiger Woods was eight months old. And, uh, and um, his widow was living in Tacoma, Washington. I, I went up and knocked on the door. And... Uh, she had two of her nine children with her. And so the two children and the widow, I took them to Cyprus to see Earl. And Tiger flew in from Orlando. And I don't really think Tiger cared much about this, but he pretended to because, you know, he loved his father. And, um, and I said to him, I said, I, I, you know, I said, or he, he said to me in the living room, he said, uh, he said, I always knew there was another Tiger. I didn't know him as Tiger Fong. I knew him as Tiger One. Mm. He said, and I said, well, did, did, did he matter to you? You know, I had the feeling that it didn't. And he said, more than I can explain to you. He said, he, everything I hear, I'm just like him. And he said, he, he saved my father's life or I wouldn't be here. He said, that's, um, that's my connection to him. But, uh, but but I have to admit, to my surprise, I thought he'd be dutifully polite to these people, these Vietnamese. But he was incredibly sweet to them. Yeah. You know, he was very, very sweet to them. And Tiger and I were kind of stuck with each other all day, you know, like Earl's weeping and Seth's <laughs> involved with these people, you know, and, and he's, he's offering them cars, and, you know. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, Tiger and I sat in his on his bed in his old little boy room. He had all his his uh, Star Wars paraphernalia there. You know, there the, the closet was papered with Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> there, yeah. there was a a football card on the wall. Um, uh, a guy named Joiner who played for the Chargers, who I knew. He played for the Bengals when I was a Boy columnist in Cincinnati, and Charlie Joyner. He's in the Hall of Fame. And, uh, and, and Tiger and I had a long conversation about that. And then he told me about being on, on That's Impossible and sitting in Fran Tarkenton's lap. He's a Minnesota Viking quarterback. And, uh, 
you know, he was really a human being then, but, but he, 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 as time went on, he started, you know, he pulled into himself and stopped giving of himself to writers. Do you think that's um, understandable or excusable, or should he have given more of himself? I don't blame him. Everybody goes their own way. Palmer said that to me. I said to Palmer, I was sitting in his office at Bay Hill, and I told him I wanted to, just a quick thing on Tiger, and, and he said, let me catch, he said, let me, let me think about this for two seconds. I want to make sure I say what I want to say. And so he turned and he looked out the window for maybe a minute. Right. And then he said to me, he said, I've made my life sharing my life with, with the public. I've shared my life with the public. He says, I think that's the happier way to go. But everybody has to go his own way. And he said, you know, Tiger doesn't want to share his life with anyone, you know, and uh, he said, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to question him. You know, I'm not going to say that he should do what I do. I'm just going to tell him that I think he'd be happier if he did, yeah. you know, and, and, and to me, Arnold said in a sentence, he kind of got it better than anybody else. Earl had died by this time. I think, I think Earl died in 66. Um, oh, six. Oh, excuse me, oh, 06. Yeah. And, and Earl, uh, Arnie said to me, he said, I think when Tiger lost his father, he lost himself. And to me, you can't say it any quicker than that. Mm. You know, I think, I think it's true. I think that's when, when Tiger went off the deep end. And, uh, and I didn't think he'd come back. To be honest with you, after enough time went by, and he, he, you know, it, it had been so many years, and I didn't expect him to make it back. And then he finally, when he did kind of make it back, he, he, he came back further than I ever imagined he would. He won the Tour Championship. And, and I just didn't, of course, he wasn't Tiger Woods. Hmm. But he was one of the good players. He was like back on the page at the biggest events. But, 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 he, but he wasn't dominant, and he was never going to be dominant again. Does that surprise you that he was happy to be just one of those guys after what he was before? It does me slightly. I mean, especially now that he's won the Masters. I mean, and there are signs, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but there are signs, I think, that he's just about had enough. He's not the player he was. No, well, he wasn't the player. He won the Masters shooting 70. Yeah. You know, and come, come from behind. Basically, all those guys who hit the ball in the water at 12 lost the Masters. You know, and he, and he was still there. You know, so 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 he won Masters, but 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 plus Tom, the the, the way golf is now at the, at the the top level, he he's not one of the longest players anymore. I mean, the I, I watched him closely at the Presidents Cup at Royal Melbourne last year on a golf course that was designed to be played by somebody like him, and it was an education to watch. But that and that works to a certain extent at Augusta. I mean, he's probably just about long. Obviously, he is. He won last year. Or, but he's still long enough to, to play on a course that involves strategy and thought and a bit of shot making and all the rest of it. But day, week to week on the PGA Tour, that isn't going to win very often, if at all. 
No. It, it, well, on Tuesday, before that Masters last year, someone in the press sent asked him, do you ha really have to win here again, or do you just want to win here again? Yeah. And he said, I don't really have to win here again, but I really want to. Of course he did. And I was kind of glad he did. Yeah, yeah. It's a great story. But I, see, I had, I, had, uh, I had bet 20 quid on him through you, I'm pretty sure, um, at, at William Hill. Yeah. I, bet him, I bet him to win at Carnoustie, and, um, which he didn't. And, um, but he played with the winner the last day, and he shot 71 to Molinari's 69. And he finished tied for sixth, you know. And my reasoning was three has-beens in a row had won the Open Championship. Darren Clark, Ernie Els, Phil Mickelson. Yeah. And so I bet on it, but not because I thought he was the best player in the world. You know, I don't think he's the best player in the world. But but he... You know, he could have won it. You know, he, he could have won it, Carnoustie. Or as I say, well-meant, as we losers say. Yes. <laughs> but but, uh, but he, he, I mean, the Masters didn't change anything or prove anything last year. It was nice, big moment. But it was kind of an accident, you know. And, uh, and it, uh, I've heard people say it was his finest moment and it was his greatest victory. Baloney, you know, <laughs> his finest moment, his greatest victory was at Pebble Beach in 2000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that might be the best golf that's ever been played, I think. I, I just don't think anybody's ever going to touch that. And I've seen him do wonderful things. And I consider the, 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 the Open Championship he won in Liverpool as one of his highlights yeah. yeah just because of how he did it he put away the driver and he he he, he trusted himself to hit better four irons than ernie could hit wedges yeah yeah and when when uh when he and ernie were tied not they weren't tied i think tiger was one up but they were in the last two some on saturday and they both and they went out and they both kind of played horribly um Ernie short gamed a 78 into a 71. And Tiger, his only bad putting day, he putted a 66 into a 71. And so they both shot 71. But on the way out, you know how Tiger's on that practice putting green right in front of the clubhouse there. Yeah. And uh, he's hitting those one-handed with his right-hand putts. And he looks over at Hank Haney, who was staying at the Golf Digest house. And I'm standing next to Hank. And as you know, I'm fairly large. <laughs> but uh, but T Tiger didn't see me. You know? and, and he looked over at Hank and he said, maybe if I break this big guy's heart one more time, he'll go away and stay away. <laughs> yeah. Then he saw me and his heart dropped. You can see it. His heart dropped. Yeah. And I, I said, man, I'm letting you off the hook this time. I said, I, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you off the hook this time only because you're starting out. If you were coming in and said that, I'd, I'd write. Yeah. But, it, but I don't want your 
thinking about that on the first day. Forget it, skip it, it's over. I'm not gonna, you know. And, and the, the, the opposite side of that coin was, I was once standing on a tee with him and Butch Harmon and a couple of other people. And um, in those days, before the FedEx Cup, Mickelson used to take the end of the year off because he didn't want to play at the end of the year anyway. Yeah. He didn't need the money. And, uh, so, and his, his, his wife was pregnant again, and she had tough pregnancies. And uh, so he was staying home with her, you know. And uh, so, so Butch Harmon says, where's Mickelson been? And Tiger said, breastfeeding. <laughs> oh, dear. He saw me. I said, "Sorry, pal." Yeah, you know, I, I wrote that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wrote that in a bunch of notes, and one of the notes was uh, Fred Couples had just broken up with his wife, that gaudy woman who who died young and sad. Um, <laughs> she was a polo pony. Yeah, she had polo pony. And so in a notes column, in which I included breastfeeding, I put in there the reason going around. Now, um, in the horrible divorces, it's always the polo ponies who suffer the most. <laughs> so it turns out that Tom Callahan is not just a great writer of stories, he has a knack for telling them too. Hopefully you're enjoying his tales so far, and there is more to come in just a moment. But... I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you that there's an entire back catalogue of The Thing About Golf if you haven't already discovered it. There's been some terrific interviews in there, right from our very first guest, Sue Wooster, through Barboogle Dunes owner Richard Sattler, and even the great Kari Webb. To check it out, head to the Golf Australia website at golfaustralia.com.au and click the podcast tab, or do what all the smart and cool people are doing and subscribe. Now, subscription's a bad word for it because it's actually free. But what it means is you don't have to do a thing. New episodes are automatically delivered to your device as soon as they're released. You can subscribe at lots of different places. If you have an Apple device, there's a built-in app called Podcasts. If you're on Android, try Google Podcasts. Or if you're already a Spotify user, you can find us in their podcast section as well. Also, don't forget to check out the magazine page on Facebook, Golf Australia. And you can also find Thing Golf on Twitter, at T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. That's enough of the admin. Let's get back to John Huggan and Tom Callahan. Yeah, I want to, um, to move you along a bit, Tom. I mean, you've uh, you've been to the, the biggest sporting events in the world, you know, the heavyweight boxing matches, the Super Bowls, the World Series, all that stuff. Where do the top golf, the majors, rank in amidst all that? Where would you put them? Up high, up high. Um, it, it, when when Tiger won the Masters to have all four cups on his mantle at the same time, I consider that you know one of the best things I ever covered. And I, I near the end of the times I was around sports, I uh, I valued the odd things. The odd stories, you know, that you were never, you were going someplace, Sarajevo, you're going someplace that you were never going to go again, you know, and, and, and those things matter, you know, I mean, there's no intrinsic value to, 
Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King. But I counted that as a big event at the Astrodome just because it was so u- unique. You know, it was it was it was so unusual. You know, I I I covered an America's Cup in Australia where I sailed the Indian Ocean with uh, Dennis Conner. Yeah. Now what? Part of the advantage of being a Time magazine writer, he was going to be on the cover of Time. I was writing <laughs> one of his one of his self-important yes men. When I was alive, they introduced me to him, and he said, "Yeah, we're on your cover next week." I said, "That's probably because that's probably the reason I'm here." Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I sailed, you know, I sailed with him, you know. Uh, you know his 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 uh, uh, his um, men raised a spinnaker they called Dolly Parton. You know had all these pipes in the wind, and uh, Dennis said, um, <laughs> "Look at her shake those thingies." You know? <laughs> We're never going to see anything like this again. You know, and so I, you know, I liked. All those odd things. The big fights, it, it's like in Zaire, four o'clock in the morning in Africa. That's pretty dramatic. Hmm. You know, it's dramatic. And of course, you're talking about my weakness for Ernie Els. I, of all the athletes I encountered, the one I had the biggest weakness for was Ali. Yeah. yeah. Ali, he never greeted me differently. He always said the same thing to me every time he saw me. How's Angie? I like her better than you. And, and he never met her, my wife. Yeah. But but I handed her the phone once when I was trying to get rid of him. And I went into the next room, the column, came out, and she was still talking to him an hour and a half later. And, uh, it, it, you know, his fights, the big fights, they they, 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 all, they always got in my stomach. I could sit at the Super Bowl and read a newspaper, you know, but, but the big fight. And there weren't too many of them, but, you know, Leonard, Leonard Duran in Montreal, you know, where Jack Nicholas and Tom Watson were sitting at ringside. Really? Wow. Yeah. The Canadian Open was going on. And they were they had good seats. They were sitting right right in the first row after the writers. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, yeah, the biggest the biggest golf tournament that, that, that I covered. Um, certainly that that uh, Pebble Beach one. You know, and uh, I guess I guess even St Andrews that year, you know. But the biggest the biggest tournaments mattered. You know, they they they, they got. And, uh, what about and the right? What about the Ryder Cup, Tom? What, what do you make of that? Is it overblown? Is do we make too much of it, or is it just too much fun to do that? No, I think it's great. But it's the funny thing is, I I covered very few of them because there was. When I was a columnist, newspaper columnist, there was always a better story going on at the same time. Mm. You know, there, there, were, there were playoffs and world championships going on in America, you know. And so, I mean, I went to a few of them. I went to Spain, and I went to, um, um, I went to Louisville. I went to a few of them. I, got, I bet I went to four or five of them, but nothing like um, – it, it was much bigger later. I mean, when when they were playing at the Greenbrier and things like that, it wasn't it wasn't a front page story in America. Well, and and you know, 
Tom Weisskopf was deciding to go hunting instead of going to the Ryder Cup. You know, I mean, it was it, it, the players. It was it wasn't a it wasn't as one sided as people seem to remember because the matches were all good. Yeah, but but the, but the result was one sided, and uh, um, so so it wasn't high in my list. You know, I'm so I'm I'm sorry to say I don't know how as you as you I'm sure know I have a great had a great weakness for Seve Ballesteros, and and I don't even know why because I wasn't at too many Ryder Cups and and I never really knew him. I t I talked to him a few times in crowds. I only had one brief conversation with him by myself, but. He did something to me, and he does. He, he, you know, and that applies to a lot of guys. I called Mickelson once to to talk about Arnold Palmer on the phone. He called me back, and he said, "Before we talk on Arnold, can we talk on Sevy for a minute?" <laughs> he wanted to talk to somebody who knew, you know, somebody who understood. Yeah, because because Sevy mattered to him, and he told me how they both. One of their sponsors was Boss, and so they would see each other at certain events, and they teased each other. And uh, you know, he, he just was so full of joy talking about it that it helped me again, helped me kind of understand why I had this feeling for him. Yeah, well, well, to me, I mean, Seve was my all-time favorite, as you probably know, and. I mean, simply because Seve played golf the way that everybody would want to play golf. He maybe wasn't the best player, and he certainly wasn't the straightest player, and he wasn't a lot of things. But that's the way that if you could get, if you had a choice, that's the way you would want to play. The way he played. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. There was just something about him. Of course, I was at his the first match that he won, and in those days, and he, he ran, he ran away with that Masters, and. Uh, he was Tyrone Power Hanson. He was he was as good good looking a golfer as anyone ever saw. And he, I can remember rounds following him. I remember following him with Mickelson once. I can remember following him and Tom Watson. That that second that second Masters that seventy one. But the day my biggest memory of him is the day before. The 97 Masters, you know, when Tiger was 21 and won by 12 shots. Yeah. And that last, on that Wednesday, which was Seve's 40th birthday, um, Tiger played with Jose Maria off the ball and, and Seve for nine holes, front nine. And at the end of each hole, they would stick a peg in the green and they would have a contest, 100 footers, up, up, down, and around. The longest, most undulating putt they could find on the green. And they were like schoolboys, you know, enjoying it. And uh, after nine holes, Tiger went off by himself. He, him and Mike Callum, Seth Callum. And um, Seve walked by me, and I said to him, does 40 feel any different? And he said, how you know I shoot 40? <laughs> I said, how And he came over and he put his arms around me and he said, me amigo. 
And uh, <laughs> later that afternoon, Tiger's hitting golf balls. And I'm looking at his bag to uh, see what he's hitting. And he says, it's an eight iron. He says, I hit, I usually start with eight irons. He said, I probably hit more eight irons than any other club. I said, except putter. He said, yeah, except putter. So I said, I was curious, why did you leave Ollie instead of, and he said, I wanted to go off by myself and try some things I'd seen Seve do. So he said, uh, you know, there are some things you can only learn from another player. He said, if I could have gone out by myself without Mike, I would have, you know? <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know, that's how great Seve is. Yeah, that's we, how great Yeah, Seve, Seve could hit shots that nobody else could hit. Literally nobody else could hit. And in those days, Tiger wasn't afraid to tell you. Today, today he wouldn't tell you. Yeah. But, but he told me, you know, he said, you know, uh, you can only learn, there's things, some things you we learned from another player. Yeah, and, but, uh, but Seve suffered in, maybe not quite as much, but uh, from the equipment changes that have come along. I mean, when they started, everybody was using 60-degree wedges. Uh, it meant that a lot of guys could hit the shots that only Seve could hit before. You know, the, the bit more loft gave them advantage. And Tiger suffered unbelievably, I think. I mean, for all that Tiger won, which is extraordinary, obviously, I think he would have won half as much again if the equipment had, hadn't, advantaged or brought the, the average guy closer to him than he was entitled to be, really. Well, that's interesting. I can remember a shot Seve hit on the um, on the fourth hole in Augusta, the long par three. Um, he was playing with Raymond Floyd, and he missed the green to the right. And I don't know what club he used, but he hit it straight up in the air. I'm going to say 100 feet in the air. And it, 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 he hit it, he swung as hard as if he was hitting a driver. Went straight up in the air, came down, hit about a 10 footer, made it. And so later in the press room, Floyd's in first, giving his birdies and bogeys. And somebody said, Could you describe the shot hit that Seve hit on the fourth hole? And Floyd said, yes, but it's going to take me a few minutes. And then he said, describe it. He said he took a shot. He did a shot I wouldn't do in a million years. I wouldn't attempt in a million years. And, uh, and, and Floyd was no mean short game expert, by the way. No, no. Yeah, but he said, I'd have, I'd have tried to hit something on the back of that green, hoping for a 25-footer. He said, <laughs> so anyway, he said he hit a 12-footer and made it. And then Seve comes in, and he's given his birdies and bogeys. You know you know how they rattle them off. Yeah. Driver, six iron, two putts. You know, driver, three wood in the front bunker, splashed out and missed it. You know, <laughs> three wood, bad five iron, two putts. You know, <laughs> he gets the fourth hole and he says, missed, missed the green, pitched it, made it. Driver on the fifth hole, <laughs> and uh, somebody stopped him. Said, "Would you mind going over that fourth again?" And was was that a pretty good shot? And so he goes, "Yeah, yeah, very good shot, pretty good shot." I hit me out, hit it, hit a wedge, opened it up as far as I could, hit it as high as I could, 
had a bottle, six-footer made it. And, and so I said to him, I said, Rick Floyd was in there a few minutes ago. He called it a 12-footer, then a 10-footer. You, you called it an eight-footer, now it's a six-footer. Is there any chance that ball's still moving? <laughs> and the funny thing is, he got mad. Really? Wow. Okay, okay, okay. You, you okay? You, you say six foot, ten foot. Better for me. Better for me. You know. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. I mean, he, he, he had great shots that never, that never even crossed his mind. They were great shots. Jack Nicholas says the greatest shot he ever saw was a. Of wood out of a bunker at a, in a Ryder Cup. Yeah, eighty-three at uh, at Palm Beach PJ National against playing against Fuzzy Zeller. I, I once I went to Zeller once at a Masters and asked him about that shot that Seve hit, and Zeller said that he was standing in the middle of the fairway, you know, twenty-five yards away or whatever, and when Seve hit it, um, all he, he says, I, I stood there and applauded. I mean, how good! How good is that? I mean, that doesn't happen every day. Where the the guy, it's on the last hole of the match as well. You yeah. know, he actually applauded the shot that Seve hit. Yeah. Well, well, if Jack Nicholas says that's the best shot he ever saw, that's something. Yeah. But I, but I doubt Seve ever mentioned that shot. Yeah. You know? Maybe not. Yeah. You had to ask him about those things, as you say. He, he yeah. wasn't because it didn't actually mean that much to him, but because he did it every day, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and, he, know, and even and even at the end, Tom, when he was when he was basically hopeless. I mean, he couldn't play at all, long game wise. He was still worth watching. Um, you know, I used to go out and watch him when he was. It was horrific to to. But he would still hit a couple of shots that you would just go, "Wow!" You know, nobody nobody else could do that. You know, yeah, it was well, all, all within a hundred yards, but because he couldn't play at all beyond that. But it was still worth watching him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, he, I, I, for several reasons, mostly things I saw than interaction with him. Um, the first three years Ernie Els played in the match play at Wentworth, mm-hmm. he won all three tournaments. And, they, and this is, these are 36 whole matches, you know, and he went. He, he walked through that tournament three straight years. Yeah. And the best match in those early matches, he beat Seve on the 34th hole on a day when they had 13 twos between them. Yeah, yeah. 13 twos. And, and Seve and Ernie chipped in on each other twice. On top of each other, and I went into the locker room, and Ernie's not there, but Seve's there, sitting with Niels, Ernie's father, who was a tough guy. Mm. He, he he had a trucking company in in South Africa. He was a tough guy, Niels, and he's weeping. You know, he's he's sitting there with Seve, and he's crying. And Seve's telling him, whispering to him, how good your boy is and how good he's going to be. And I thought, he's just lost this killer match. It's so generous. You know, I mean, he, the, the, Seve had a generosity of spirit. And again, he wasn't the perfect person either. No, you know? far, far from it, yeah. But he had this generosity 
of spirit. And I told Ernie that I, I, Ernie teared up. I'm telling him, I said, he was, he was there talking to your dad, and your dad was crying. And T. Niels was not a crier. Mm, no. <laughs> and, uh, and and I said, he was he was you know, telling him how good you, you were and how good you were going to be. Yeah, but Sammy would be Ernie's idol growing up as well. I mean, he, he was everybody's idol I'm sure. outside America. Um, it, it's it, and I've heard you say this before, but it, it's it, and I agree completely. It's it's one of the great tragedies of golf of the last fifty years or whatever that Seve and America didn't get along better. You well, know, I blame the American writers. They they took the easy, lazy way out. They're always writing about the Matador and the Cape, you know, and they they, they didn't let the people know him and. He could have been our Seve too, but but the American writers decided he was their Palmer. He's their Palmer. That was the that was shorthand for who he was, yeah. what he did, and it cheated Americans out of knowing him. And of course, when he arrived at the PGA Tour, there were a lot of rednecks, you know, like the Hill brothers, you know, who. Didn't want a great player from Europe to come over and take their prize money. Yeah, you know who, you know, were cruel to him. Not just him, you know, you know cruel to Jack Newton. Cruel. Tony cruel. Ja- Tony Jacklin was the first one who suffered that really, and Bobby Locke, even back way back in the fifties, was basically yeah. run out of town, you know, because he was too good for them. Yeah, and and, and uh, you know. The commissioner didn't didn't do it. No, golf. he didn't do golf any favors either. And I and I know there are problems with Seve, and I know he he, he wanted you know appearance money in Europe, etc. He had, he had all these you know he, he wasn't perfect, but but a big opportunity was missed in my view that he could have been uh, he could have been America's Seve too, and and. Especially after he lost his game, he'd walk by and people would just weep. You know, and they were so touched by him. And the reason they were touched by him was he tried so hard. Mm. You know, he 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 wanted to win so badly. You know that I mean, it it you couldn't help. You couldn't help but be touched by him. And when I've, I've said to people, you know, of all the golfers I've ever been around, the, the most compelling was Seve Bay Stairs. And they look at me blankly like, huh? Yeah. But that, ju- that just goes back to the earlier well, point. They, they, they didn't get it, and it's a shame. Oh, the 86 Masters, and you say Seve? Hmm. Yeah, I do. I say Seve. You know, and 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 you know, people people don't understand. They don't get it, which is it's just, which is a real sad thing because they should get it. They should be have, have been able to see him. And uh, uh, I mean, I saw that movie on him where at the end it's it's Jose Maria and him standing. Oh there. my God! Yeah, that that I've seen that movie as well, and that that's the only part. That I hadn't seen before, or wasn't for the story, part of the story. I wasn't familiar. That was at the end of a, 
BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards show where Seve got the overseas, you know, personality part of it. And we saw Ollie giving Seve the trophy and all the rest of it, but the bit that was in the movie that, that you're referencing, that came afterwards and nobody saw that until it was shown in the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it made me cry. I know that. What a killer. What a killer. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, he... he he was amazing, uh, you know, I, and I've talked to players, you know, most of the players got it, even in America. Mm-hmm. That's the, the, the players, the players got it, yeah, but, but, the, but the writers didn't get it, and uh, which is really sad. And uh, but th- Things have moved on a bit. I mean, you look at the way that, um, admittedly, Rory you know, lives in America and he's married to an American, but he, he's been accepted far more. And he's the, you know, he's the guy that, you know, Everybody says everybody plays their best. Rory wins, and whether that's still true or not is up for debate. But he's certainly right up there. I mean, and he's hugely charismatic. But he's he seems to be far more accepted than than the previous generations were, if you like. The only honorary American of my time was Greg Norman. Yeah, yeah. and that that was because Frank Shakini of CBS needed a hero, mm. and he he just, he said, "I'm going to make this guy my hero," you know, and and. Uh, and of course, he was great too. And uh, so he, Americans, kind of uh, embraced him as as their own, you know. And um, um, and which was very, you know, which was very unusual. But uh, but uh, what, 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 else, what do you make of Rory these days? Well, I've always um, liked him. Uh, he he. Uh, I spent some time in Belfast doing a project, and uh, I lived in a little town where he lived in Hollywood. Of course, I didn't know him then; he was a child. But um, I was there in '95. But that that day, I, I was with him at uh, at uh, Sawgrass. We're, we're, I was like baffling him because I'm telling him all these things. He, he can't understand how I know this. I'll say, is Birdie still the fish and chips guy in Hollywood? <laughs> you know? Yeah. How do you know this? You know, I was driving crazy. And uh, but anyway, I told him, I said, yeah, I played that jerk water course of yours, Hollywood Country Club. <laughs> I said, I would have kicked your ass so bad. There. And and I said to him, I said, uh, Chris, this is 1995, and you were four years old. And he said, are you sure? He said, I was pretty good when I was four. <laughs> Which is, he could have beat me when he was four at Hollywood. But uh, he, certainly yeah, could have be- he certainly could have beat you at putting, I know that. Yes, that's true. But, uh, but he, uh, it, it, you know, I just, I, I just think he had the right stuff. He, he, he seemed, the mistakes he made were the mistakes of a kid and were not and we're not evil and we're not, you know, angry. And, and he was, when he was great, he was wonderful. And, um, you know, I, I like the way he kind of stood up to Kipka. Hmm. Kipka's got a big talent, but, you know, he could use a punch in the nose. <laughs> yeah. And Rory, you know, when, when, when Kipka is, is, saying things against another player, you know, he steps up for the other player mm. out loud, you know, and in the press room. And uh, he's, 
he, I think he senses or maybe just flat knows how important his part in, in golf is now. And uh, so he takes responsibility, you know, and uh, I, I'm going to be very disappointed if this lack of the Masters goes on and on to the point where it's debilitating. Yeah, yeah. Once he's won the four, he'll, he'll win three more in five years. You know, he's 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 so good, and uh, um, he's he, he, I, I used to say Norman was the the best longest driver, straightest longest driver ever seen. Even even more than Jack, and Jack was a straight long driver. Mm. And, and Jack, Jack could do a lot of a lot of things. You know, people don't remember, uh, you know, how, how good he was. But uh, which is the, that's the way it, it's always going to be. You know, people will forget, yeah. you know, how, how, good, how good they all are. Yeah. Tom, I'm conscious of the fact that we've gone on now for an hour and 26 minutes and a bit, but I'm going to ask you to finish this thing off by telling your favorite Muhammad Ali story. Nothing to do with golf, but uh, the, the, your Muhammad Ali stories are too good to miss. So give me your best one. Oh God! You have one. You have one particular one in mind. Um, the Zaire, the aftermath of Zaire. When your your prediction on how he was going to do in that fight? Yeah, of course. I thought he was. I thought we were there for for his battle victory, and I uh, couldn't have been more wrong. But uh, uh, they had a betting sheet on the wall in Zaire. In, in, in Selly, where the writers were staying, Hacienda. And uh, I picked Foreman and won. I couldn't get out of my head what Foreman had done to Ken Norton, you know, and uh, <laughs> he was knocking guys out of the ring. Yeah, Joe Frazier, I mean, he destroyed him as well, didn't he? Yeah. He ran for the first time in his life, and he got knocked down six times. And... Um, and Frazier was a sweet guy too. You know, Frazier used to wrap his own hands and he was in Philadelphia and he'd say, Tom, put your finger right there, please. And I'd put my finger on the tape and then he'd finish wrapping his hands. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he was, he, he, he was, uh, once Frazier said to me, uh, uh, or I said, I, I guess I said to him, I said, uh, um, or, or he, I, I said, I said, Joe, once won, is a championship ever completely lost? And Frazier said, a champion would be a champion if he's a champion. Do you know who said that? I said, who? God. He said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're in Africa now, and, and, and Ali, he comes into the writer's room, and he's looking on the wall at all the bets, and he comes to to, to Foreman and one and he turns around and, and he waves to me to come outside with him. So we, we went out into the dark, blacker than half past midnight. And uh, we walked, we held onto each other because it was so dark you couldn't see your feet. And, uh, and we, we made our way down to the bank of the Congo River. And um, we got there and he said, I'm going to tell you something and I don't want you ever to forget it. Black men scare white men more than black men scare black men. 
<laughs> so that was the whole fight. We were we were petrified of George Foreman, and uh, so now the fight starts, or, or the anthem starts, four o'clock in the morning at the stadium, hundred thousand black faces, and uh, Angelo Dundee, Ali's trainer, he's stuck in the in Foreman's corner checking on the gloves or something, and and he he, he does he's afraid to move while the anthem's going. So Ali's alone in his corner, and, he, and, he, and he's looking across at Angelo, and he goes, Angelo, Angelo. Angelo's not moving. Then he, then he finally he says, Angelo, look at him. He's huge. Look at the arm. Look at the arm, Angelo. He's huge. You know, and uh, I thought to myself, uh-oh. And so now the first round was basically a no-hitter. Ali was used the first round to prove to himself that Foreman couldn't hit him, couldn't hit him in the head, which no one could. And uh, the bell rang at the end of the round, which eliminated me from the pool. And uh, Ali ran to the corner, spit out his mouthpiece, and straight over my head, he shouted to Herbert Muhammad, his manager, Elijah Muhammad's son, leave him to me. <laughs> and I turned to Vic Siegel of the New York Daily News, and I said, wrong again, Vic. <laughs> yeah, I knew, I knew that I was wrong. And eight, he, he, Foreman fell in the eighth round, not from one punch, but from a thousand jabs, dead in the face. He was blushing. First time I ever saw a black man with a red face. Yeah. And uh, and Ali, Ali, years later, he's getting ready to fight Larry Holmes in Las Vegas. The two of us are alone in his hotel room, and he says to me, "Who are you picking?" I said, the other guy, Jim, he said, you always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Anyway, Tom, uh, you've been right far more than you've ever been wrong in, in my mind. And thank you for your time. You've been very generous as ever. It's uh, over an hour and a half of yabbering to me. I think uh, you deserve a medal for that anyway. And, and thanks again for your time. Well, good luck with this new thing, John. What a life Tom Callahan has had and what a terrific way to finish the 2020 season of The Thing About Golf. Yes, that was our last for the year, but we will be back before you know it with episode 33. Keep an eye out for us on Twitter and Facebook and in your podcast apps and we'll look forward to your company on the other side of the new year.